Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast. In episode 15, we are talking to improviser, author and educator Stephen Nagmanovic. Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast. Today it's my great pleasure and privilege to be speaking to American musician, author, computer artist, educator and all sorts of other things, Stephen Nakmanovich. Stephen, thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. How is everything in Virginia? It is Virginia, isn't it? <laughs> it is Virginia, yes. And uh, <laughs> yes, it's very... Uh, like you, we're in the depth of the pandemic, and uh, it's difficult, you know. And at the same time, it's very interesting. You know, if you are, for me as a musician, I miss playing with other people. And for me as a human being, I miss playing with other people. But on the other hand, here I am talking to you, and we might not be doing this if there were no pandemic. I realize that I'm in a very privileged position because I live in a nice place in the country, so I'm able to get out in nature and take walks and, you know, be contained in a larger world, uh, even though I'm socially isolated in a way. But it's also been very interesting because I've been collaborating with people in many places in the world. These are opportunities I might not have had otherwise. And that's been quite fascinating. And it's, it's been, uh, I've been playing with the idea. I picked it, it's a Christian idea, but I picked it up from James Joyce Finnegan's Wake, The Fortunate Fall, that um, there's a fall of some kind, there's a, a deep problem in the universe, but without it, you wouldn't have the life that you have. You mentioned collaborations. How have you um, spent the last, it's nearly a year now since in the UK yeah. we've been locked down. What sort of things have you uh, been up to creatively and with other people? With other people and with other organisms. I've been, I mean, I've been uh, very uh, fortunate to have a lot of teaching opportunities around the world and work with students in many universities. But also on my daily walks in the woods here, uh, I encountered a lot of birds. And that was really quite interesting. I hadn't been really obsessed with birds before, though uh, some of that is in my heritage. My grandfather was uh, one of those people in his childhood in Russia, uh, learned how to raise those racing those. Uh, homing pigeons who would fly all the way across Siberia and back. And uh, my interest in biology and natural history has been lifelong. So I started making music with the birds. I started just going out recording the birds in, my, in the woods in my neighborhood and bringing the recordings back and um, playing with them on violin family instruments of different kinds. And I came out with an album called Hermitage of Thrushes, which is uh, duets, trios, quintets, quartets, 
<laughs> for me and the and the neighborhood birds and that's been a very very interesting process for me There's a number of other musicians that I've collaborated with recently. Um, one person who's very interesting, who's also, who's worked with birds far longer than I have, is a man named David Rothenberg, who's a, who sort of like me is uh, living on the Venn diagram that connects music and philosophy. Uh, he's worked with birds and with whales and with other organisms. Uh, for many years. And so we started doing some collaborations, um, the two of us. Uh, he's in New York, I'm here, playing over the internet with bird sounds with each other. And uh, so we just completed a new album, uh, which is called From This World Another. And that will be released fairly soon. We're working on a little book of dialogues about improvisation and our creative process that's going to go with the recording. I think I caught a snippet of one of your online concerts. Did you do something live yes. or streamed with David? Yeah, we did something live, yeah. Has it been a new experience for you doing live improvised concerts and performances? Oh, yes. Technologically speaking. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, fortunately, I've I've always been pretty technologically equipped here in my studio. But my concept of improvisation um, and the music that I do is 100% improvised. I have many colleagues who are somewhere in the hybrid realm between written composition and improvisation. Uh, and I envy that in many ways, but uh, I am uh, strictly an improviser. And so to improvise with another person is a very, very intimate thing. And, you know, we thrive on this intimate contact of, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, gesture-to-gesture, breath-to-breath, you know, being in the same room and... Uh, you know, I love teaching in that way also, you know, when people are uh, uh, in groups which can be quite large. It's really extraordinary what happens in a room when people are together, safe, unguarded, uh, free to create, and that's quite beautiful. So setting up the barriers of the pandemic, you know, when we're all in our little cubby holes and we're connected i mean it's quite wonderful how you and i are able to be connected by zoom and other software like that right now but it still is you know flat screen microphone to speaker all of the three-dimensional connectivity of people is not there and also there's the latency 
So if you're playing closely timed rhythmic music, it's difficult. I did some experiments with some singer friends early in the pandemic of just clapping and saying, okay, let's, let's try these exercises of see how far off we are. And um, it was between here in Virginia and Los Angeles, so that's about 3,000 miles away. And uh, it was not successful. And by successful, I was defining, I was uh, doing a poor job of defining success at that point as meaning being able to emulate the closeness that you can have rhythmically with people that you're in the same room with. Then I started to realize that the latency is just another member of the band. And you welcome it, it, you don't try to ignore it, and you don't try to transcend it or something like that, because you can't, because it's built into the electromagnetic structure of our interaction. However, if you embrace it and just welcome it as another, as another member of the band, it really is not a problem. And I've found in uh, working with a number of other musicians that if we just play together, then we are together. Another thing that's really quite interesting is that when there are flaws and glitches, like you and I are working on a model right now where we're each recording our side of the conversation separately. We're speaking over Zoom, and that's both of us, but I've got my recording and you got your recording, and you're going to put them together afterwards. So in that way, you can, after you use the Zoom recording to synchronize our two streams of speech, you can then delete the Zoom recording and you've got two high quality recordings to work with. So musically, that makes all the difference because we're able to play together and get uh, technically as good a result as if we were recording in a studio. And it has the additional advantage that if somebody, if one of the musicians makes a blooper, you can edit that without disturbing the flow of the music, without disturbing the other person's flow. Of course, pop musicians do this all the time. Most pop records are recorded in isolation booths uh, where the drum layer and the bass layer and the singing layer and all the other musicians are recorded just laying tracks one over another. So it's possible for the recording engineer to do all sorts of things to the recording, mixing the musicians after the fact. Now, with live improvisation, of course, it thrives on our interaction. The music doesn't exist anywhere else. So if you're doing a live, you and I are playing a live improvisation concert before an audience or before microphones, we have both the blessing and the curse that all the bloopers are there and all the imperfections are there, and that's part of the flow of what we do. But um, with this method of recording over the internet, you've kind of got the best of both worlds. And that's really fascinating to me. I hadn't really anticipated that. It's interesting to hear you talk about bloopers and improvised music. A lot of people maybe have quite a, an abstract idea of what it means to improvise, whether that 
be in a musical context or in any other context. And yeah. then I've spent the afternoon delving into your writings and your, your, some of your videos about improvisation and various other things. And one thing that comes across is how tangibly you speak about improvisation, how it's not just an abstract, wishy-washy, random interaction between various things, but how it's an extremely structured, in some ways, scientific way of creating and living. That's a, that's a great summary, yes. Um, sometimes, of course, I've always been nonplussed for my entire lifetime by the question of what kind of music do you play? <laughs> and um, it doesn't fit into any category. I mean, I can describe the influences and the kinds of things that I've listened to and loved and so on, but um, it doesn't have a name. In one of my attempts to name the kind of music that I play, I say that I play materialistic music. In our society, we think that materialism means obsession with money. But in the sense that I'm using the word, I am really interested in materials. If you play a violin, what does the wood sound like? What does the wood and strings of that violin sound like different from every other violin? What does the wood and strings in this room with these walls reverberating the sound in particular ways sound like that's different from every other sound? What does the material of my body, the fact that my hands have a certain weight and a certain balance that's different from everyone else's hands, that my whole body is different from everyone else's hands and is particular in its material existence and its constant material transformation. So the improvised music that we play is played from that material existence. It's the music that wants to be played by that instrument, by this body in this time, with this breath and this feeling. So it's very materialistic. <laughs> in a sense, it's actually, it could be said to be inevitable, even though it's improvised and it's very free. In some respects, in other respects, the way you're talking about it suggests that that music wants to happen at that time. Yes. That recalls uh, one of the things I read this afternoon. We, we share a love of instruments with sympathetic strings. Uh -huh. Actually, when I first started reading your work many years ago, I, I had no idea that you were a string player. That was purely coincidental. So that was a nice surprise for me as a violinist. And then to also discover that you love playing these instruments with sympathetic strings, like the viola d'amore. And I have a sort of custom-made instrument by a mutual friend of ours, another bizarre coincidence, Yes. which has <laughs> a number of sympathetic strings. And you were talking about the viola d'amore, this rather old instrument, and how it wants to be played differently because of the natural resonance of the instrument, that 
it needs longer to speak and that it, you need to let it you need to give it the space to do what it does which is along the same sort of lines as what you're talking about i think yes yeah you put that very very well and there's a way in which that um lesson from the viola de more is also a lesson in improvisation with other people here you have an instrument that has sympathetic strings that generate a kind of subtle but very very interesting after flavor to the sounds that you are deliberately making on the instrument and you let go of the bow and there's this after flavor that lingers for some time. And so what you want to do is not step on that. You want to make a gesture and then be quiet so that the after flavor can linger. Now, the viola de more is generally used in playing I hate to say it, but second-rate Baroque music, Baroque chamber music, you know. I mean, some of it is very lovely, but, you know, it's not what that instrument can really do. And what that instrument can really do is play with silence and in silence if it's given the chance to reverberate. When you're improvising with other people, it's actually the same thing. Playing with other people is uh, the great uh, English-Canadian theater improviser Keith Johnston talks about chivalry. That if I'm playing with you, my job is not to step on your line, but to stand back and allow some space. So if I'm allowing you some space, and you're allowing me some space. We are both doing less than we might ordinarily do. And the result is interesting. Del Close, who was another teacher of theater improvisers uh, in the world of comedy, said that your job as an improviser is not to come up with clever lines. Your job as an improviser is to make your partner's shitty lines sound good. So whether you're playing solo with a very um, refined and archaic instrument like the viola de more, or whether you're playing comedy on stage with another partner, it's really the same thing as how do you do less and how do you stand back? I find it really interesting back in the old days when people used to travel. <laughs> I used to travel and give talks in various places. And I would find it very interesting when I would be giving a talk in a place where it was not, English was not the native language, and I'd have a translator. Because if you have sequential translation, which is the only way to do it, really, because in simultaneous translation, you're stepping on each other all the time, and nobody can really hear anything. <laughs> so if I say something in English, 
and pause so that the person can say something in Spanish, who then pauses so that I can say something in English, and so forth, then during an hour talk, I'm actually giving a half hour talk. So it's twice as good. Less is more. Yes, it's twice as good because there's more silence and the listeners have a chance to pause, but you, the speaker, have a chance to pause. And you can see each other. And it's so interesting to have those gaps. As you say in England, mind the gap. <laughs> Absolutely. My former place of domicile. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> The big smoke. Hence, your, one of your most common pieces of advice for people when you're working with them is play less. Yeah. I find the same thing with myself and, and when I'm working with students and other people. The most useful piece of advice is usually play less. Easy to forget, though, when you feel the pressure of producing something, something that will make you memorable. Yes. Well, that's an interesting way that you put it. So... It's hard for people. The key to so many things is to play less and to do less. Yet students, it doesn't matter whether people are students or high-level professionals or whatever they are, there is always the pressure to produce more because if you're a student, you want to get a good grade and the unspoken assumption is that you go to get a good grade by performing. And if you're an instrumentalist, the fact that you can perform fast and accurately and play a great many notes per minute is really easy to grade. This is why competitions, there are violin competitions, piano competitions, and so forth all over the world in the classical music world. And if you have judges listening to six violinists playing the Prokofiev first violin concerto, which is so wonderful and so hard to play and so fast and so skippy and zippy, I love that piece. But um, it's very easy to judge who is technically adept. It's not easy to judge who is spiritually adept, if that is, in, is even something that one should judge or could judge. It's not easy to judge the depth or the interest or the uniqueness of an interpretation of a composed piece. And therefore, competitions, whether for grades in school or big competitions in auditoriums tend to be geared towards the technical. And if you're a teacher, education has really changed a great deal during my lifetime because of the extraordinary emphasis on assessment and evaluation. And teachers are being constantly assessed and therefore, you've got to have a really organized syllabus many, many weeks in advance. 
And often you have to submit that syllabus many, many weeks in advance. So an improvisational teacher who simply walks into the room and interacts with the students and helps churn the collective experience into something interesting, that's very hard to maintain and justify in a world of excessive assessment. You're a performer, you know, you have passed the student stage and you're out there uh, standing up on stage giving a concert and people have paid money to sit in those seats so you want to give them their money's worth. That's another episode of that sort of oppression that takes place. You're a teacher in a music school, and the students' parents have paid a lot of money for those students to attend the school and made sacrifices. And they come to the, you know, they want to know, is it worth it? So all these, I mean, these are legitimate questions. You know, you do actually want to spend your money well. It's not, it's not stupid to question that by any means. But those questions tend to shovel us into a place of performance, into a place of purpose, when often the really interesting thing to do is to stand back and allow the resonance to occur and allow the people that you're with to experience that resonance slowly. I understand that I'm also speaking to you as an old man, and it's traditional for old men to value slowness. <laughs> but I think there's something very important about this idea. That brings me on to a, another question that I thought of earlier, which is, do, do you think, my initial question was, what is the value of journalism, critical journalism in music, maybe particularly with music that's, that's much less clear in, in, its in, in its intrinsic value, for example, improvised forms of music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and further, is art irreconcilably disconnected from a, from a world that functions economically. To the first question about the value of journalism, there probably are good improvisations and bad improvisations. There probably is good journalism and bad journalism. These are both expressive forms. Music is an expressive form. Writing about music is an expressive form. Um, 
in both cases, I mean, to return to the theme that we were talking about before, quality resides in giving space for what you're looking at to expand and fill your field of vision and develop in some way. Clearly, the, uh, the journalist who writes a snarky put-down is uh, not helpful. The journalist who describes what is happening in music in purely technical terms or purely historical terms this person shows the influence of the following five artists. That may well be true, but that's not as helpful as the invitation to the reader or to the listener to come into a space and experience something for themselves. Now, this is really hard in music journalism because you can't... Um, describe music. I've written a lot, I've read a lot of writing about music in my life. I haven't yet read a description of music that is anything like the music that is being described. So it's a difficult art. Nevertheless, sometimes it can be very interesting. You know, but I, I mean, you can't describe um, music in words. You can't describe um, painting, photography in words. You can't describe film in words. Many film reviewers are able to write about a film in such a way that makes you interested to see it, or perhaps interested to not see it and not spend your time doing that. And they can do so in a way that's really intelligent. But they aren't duplicating the experience of the film. Um, and I realize that you can't even describe words in words. I read a novel, Mitchell's novel, The Bone Clocks. And I really enjoyed it tremendously. And I was sitting at the dinner table with my family saying, well, I've just read this book. It's really quite wonderful. What's it about? Well, all I could say is, well, it's about a woman named Holly Sykes. <laughs> and then I tried to describe it. And of course, it's com any description, the description I gave was completely idiotic because you try to compress the plot of a novel or the spirit of a novel or the way a novel's parts are integrated, and you don't get very far. So in a sense, everything is itself and can't be described, which of course is the essence of improvised music and other improvised art forms, a chance for you the player, the beer, to be with this event that 
can't be described, is not portable, can't be broken into parts and analyzed, and so on. Now, your second question, having to do really with the relationship between art and money, assuming that human beings don't destroy ourselves in ecological catastrophes in the coming time, if there are people here a thousand and two thousand years from now, the same discussion will be happening. And the same discussion has always happened in one form or another. It's difficult, it's fraught. People have somehow managed to do art regardless of the fact that it's a difficult and fraught issue. Lewis Hyde, do you know Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift? I don't know. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It was a very influential book uh, by a uh, Hyde as a poet and culture and literary critic. And uh, he really brought into common discourse the idea of the two parallel economies, the money economy and the gift economy. You and I are having a conversation now that's quite interesting. Uh, there's no money involved. We're talking because we both think it's pleasurable to do that. And your listeners are similarly in the same boat with us. They're spending time doing something for the, the pleasure and the interest of doing it. And at the same time, uh, you and I are both wearing headphones, which cost money. Uh, we're both sitting in rooms that have books and musical instruments that cost money. Uh, we're both powered by our metabolism, which depends on food and so forth. And so we live in a world that functions partly on the money economy and partly on the gift economy. And when one is an artist and you have the privilege of getting paid to do something that you love, that's really, really wonderful. But of course, then there's still all kinds of fraught issues of uh, being influenced by commercial considerations to do a little more of this and a little less of that or being influenced by your inner love of what's interesting to you to do. Well, let's, I don't want to do that, even if I do have a chance to be paid to do it, and so on. So it's very complicated. Um, so many people have written about this issue. Nobody has the answer to it. However, everybody who lives in the arts does have an answer to it by living their life. I mean, the inter interesting thing to me, every once in a while, I run across this, you know, this kind of a genre of literature connecting uh, creativity and madness. And of course, they always bring up Van Gogh and... Uh, various other artists who had uh, mental illness of various kinds. I've always found that to be such a bunch of nonsense because 
as an artist, I know a great many artists. And the vast majority of those artists are ordinary people who are living their lives, paying the rent, dealing with the problems of life, dealing with the problems of their inner creativity. And we're professional people, you know. And as professional people, we've each figured out ways of living. Whether you teach in a university to support your art, except your art feeds into what you're teaching, and it's not clear. I've, I've, I've written about sacred and secular a lot, you know, that, that these are the two halves of life. If you want to give a cartoonish caricature of it, the sacred and the secular. And the sacred and the secular feed each other and support each other, of course. If you're a waiter or waitress, supporting your singing or your photography by working in a restaurant. That's one way of doing it. If you're a commercial artist doing logos for corporations, but in the other room you've got your surreal paintings, that's another way of doing it. There's so many thousands and thousands of ways of doing it. But people do do it. In regards to Van Gogh and uh, similar artists who have suffered as people, there, there does this, it comes back to journalism and, and writing, I suppose, and pop culture, the sometimes problematic fetishization of suffering and the underground idea of bohemian romanticism of of mental suffering and and uh, substance abuse and life lived in squalor and and difficulty There's people like Char <laughs> charlie parker who yes. who speaks about charlie parker 90% of the time there's a there's a mention of drug abuse and and even at the time there was an idea that his drug abuse was somehow responsible for his his contribution to the music and actually the truth is probably more likely that had he not abused his body in the way that he did, his contribution may have continued for decades more and it may have been more cohesive because a lot of the time that probably held him back. So it's it's completely the wrong lens to focus on these people in exactly. some respects. Could we talk a little bit about how you got into music and improvisation? Because I know a lot about your time from university onwards, your time spent with Gregory Bateson um, studying holistic collection of concepts and ideas and, and subjects, but I don't know, I know very little about how you actually ended up as an improvising string player. What's the story oh. behind that? <clears throat> well, it's actually kind of tied up to, to my experiences with Gregory Bateson and other teachers that I've had. But um, as a child, I mean, I always loved music. I did not have any musicians in my family. I didn't have any... I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I have a number of cousins who are in my generation who were all the first 
people in their family to go to college. My father literally never read a book in his life. My mother read lots of books, though she was a high school dropout in the Depression. And um, I just heard music in recordings as I was a kid. Um, I took violin lessons. My parents got me a violin, and I started playing violin at age seven. And I took lessons from a, uh, a really wonderful teacher whom I remained friends with until his death in my 30s. But I was not that great. And I played in orchestras, and I, I did that sort of thing. Um, but I never expected that I would actually be a musician. And I had friends in junior high school, high school, who were extremely talented and were studying with people like Heifetz, Piatigorsky, you know, top top of the line musicians. So I, I clearly did not belong in that category. <laughs> and what I was really interested in was the sciences. But there was a way in which I was interested in what it's all about. So I remember, in fact, when I was around seven, yeah, I was seven years old, we went to a concert at the Hollywood, I grew up in Los Angeles. And so we went to a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. I think it's the only time my parents ever went there with me. They paused the concert because the Sputnik the first satellite launched by the Russians was about to be flying overhead right where we could see it. So they actually paused the concert so that everybody could look up at the Sputnik, at this little shiny star-like dot as it flew overhead. In the United States, uh, the Sputnik was regarded as a huge challenge um, that we were behind in science and math and technology, and we had to catch. Actually, we weren't behind in those things, but those things became very important. And um, like lots of kids that I knew, I got really interested in physics. And, okay, what it's really all about is the atom, because everything reduces to that. But then when I got a little bit older, I got interested in biology because what it's really all about is life and the living cell and everything reduces to that. In fact, when I was 15, I made, I did a study. The first thing I ever published was in the Journal of Protozoology. And I did a study of protozoa, the species of predatory protozoa gobbling each other up under the microscope. They were these creatures that had like sort of long wavy elephants trunks. And um, somehow from biology, I got into animal behavior. And that got me into psychology. And I was thinking, this is what it's all about, the mind. As part of that, uh, I was studying play. Somehow I fell in with some, uh, I was an undergraduate student at Harvard, and I fell in simultaneously with two professors 
Uh, one was Jerome Bruner, who is a cognitive psychologist who worked with infants and small children and early childhood education. And uh, Irvin DeVore was an anthropologist who worked with baboon troops in the Serengeti in East Africa. I ended up studying the play of baby baboons and the play of children. This sort of began a lifelong interest for me in play. And the interesting thing about play, uh, psychologists like to talk, in those days, they liked to talk about something called behavior, as though you were studying behavior. But play is definitely not behavior because one person can be doing an activity and the other person can be doing the same activity and it's play for one and drudgery for the other. So it isn't anything that you can put your finger on. Gregory Bateson was very interested in play and I first connected with his work around that, but then when I got to meet him and he became my teacher, um, it became really how do you understand the world around you as an interdependent, interactive nexus of which you are part and from which you can never be separated. In the course of talking about that, he happened to open up William Blake's work to me. Uh, it turned out that his father, William Bateson, the biologist who coined the word genetics, had been very much, he was one of those people who collected Blake's work in England in the 19th century when Blake was still considered a complete lunatic and outside the stream of art history. Uh, but Bateson had a lot of Blake's. Uh, William Bateson had them. And it turned out that in the year of Gregory's birth, 1904, William Bateson had turned Jeffrey Keynes onto Blake. Jeffrey Keynes became the premier Blake scholar of the 20th century. He was a surgeon. He was a the brother of John Maynard Keynes, the economist. And he opened up the world to Blake's works, along with William Butler Yeats. Blake talks about the creative process in such a way that you can't study it. You have to actually do it. So through play, through Blake, I kind of fell down this rabbit hole <laughs> of understanding the interdependence and interconnectivity of everything we do. And I was still interested in music, but it was, it was something else. But when Blake kind of forces your hand not to study him, not to be like him, but to pick up your hand and create something, uh, I found that uh, the tools that I had, the violin and the bow, were just sitting there and I could do something with them. After I got my PhD in the history of consciousness, for uh, I did a study of William Blake's illustrations to the Book of Job, 
uh, I moved to Switzerland for a year and I was a high school English teacher. And I happened to bump into a Indian tabla teacher named Shashi Nayak, uh, who was teaching tabla classes in Geneva. So I started studying with him. I didn't have a violin then. And I got very, very interested. I didn't become a good enough tabla player to be a good tabla player, but I learned something about the structure of Indian music as a semi-improvised, semi-traditional form of creative expression that was parallel to Western classical music and its own universe and was deeply concerned with consciousness and was deeply concerned with deep states of mind that I found to be really fascinating. So then the next year I came back to the United States and I picked up the violin. I discovered that I didn't need composers. I still love composers, but I no longer needed them. And at the same time, I had a neck injury just after I came back to the United States. And I started learning a lot about body work and a lot of a lot about healing and body disciplines and seeing a lot of therapists of various kinds who really helped me recover from this neck injury. Um, but it, the violin is an instrument that you play from here. So if I were to crunch down on it with my neck, that would be horrible. That would be very painful. So I had to learn how to hold the violin to unlearn everything that I thought I learned when I was seven years old and relearn how to pick up the violin and hold it effortlessly and with almost no force and pick up the bow. And uh, if a violin bow weighs 60 grams, you need 60.0001 grams in your hand to keep it from falling to the floor. You don't need any more. So this was my introduction to improvisation. I discovered it entirely for myself, partly because um, I was figuring out how to play the instrument and I wasn't really thinking about what I was playing. And then several months later, I realized that I'd been improvising and didn't need composers anymore. Much as I love them and appreciate them, you don't need them. I happened to be in a place in Berkeley, California then, where I had a lot of friends who were dancers and theater people. And there was a lot of improvised work in the air. And so I began working with sort of hybrid music, dance, forms. I think partly through Blake's influence and partly through other things that I'd been interested in even before that, I was very interested in hybrid art forms and synesthesia. I became very interested in visual music, connecting music, dance, visual art, film, all these kinds of synthetic art forms 
just as Blake was sitting there in between poetry and painting and music. And so I did a lot of visual music at the same time. And then I mentioned the uh, 1965 movies I made of protozoa gobbling each, up on, each other up under the microscope. So by 1985, I had done enough visual music pieces to do a little retrospective at the UCLA Music Department in Los Angeles. So I was preparing for this, and I wanted to do a new piece. And I happened to have access to a Fairlight video synthesizer, which is a now a very primitive, archaic uh, machine for... They used to use it for like pixelating criminals' faces on on the news on TV and you know various kinds of video effects which everybody can do now with your computer. Um, but anyway, this was a this was the latest hot technology then, and something possessed me since I was going back to UCLA, where I had shot those protozoa films to project the protozoa films, the black and white protozoa films on the wall, video of them, run them through the Fairlight video synthesizer and um, turn it into a piece of visual music. The concert was coming up in a month and I did not have the musical part of it yet. And I kept trying all kinds of things which I absolutely did not like. And then I pulled out, there was a concert that I did at the Esalen Institute for Gregory Bateson's final birthday in 1980, just before he died, in which I played an electric violin piece. And he and I had been up the night before talking about protozoa for some unknown reason. This room at the Esalen Institute where I played the concert was a had a huge picture window overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and the the storm was battering the windows with rain. And I was playing the electric violin with these kinds of phase shifters and envelope filters and delays and things that gave it a kind of underwater sound. And so I was, suddenly I became the protozoa. Fortunately, that concert was taped. And then in 1985, when I was working on the protozoa piece, I suddenly remembered that I had this tape and I stuck the tape up against the video and they just matched each other blow by blow. It was absolutely wonderful. I added a couple little synthesizer things, put it together and had the show at the beginning of 86. So that was exactly 20 years transformation from being a 15-year-old boy scientist watching protozoa under the microscope and being a 35-year-old interdisciplinary artist who was doing things that couldn't really be defined, making visual music in the same place, you know. So it was quite fascinating.
few things just came quickly to mind. Did you ever happen to meet a violinist called Paul Geiger whilst you were in Switzerland? No, I never met him. I, I know his work and I love it. And I found it very inspirational, but I've never met him. Do you know him? No, no, I just uh, only in the last six months or so discovered some of his recordings. Oh, his stuff is great, yes. Yeah, also with sympathetic strings some of the time. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Is he still active, do you know? Yes, I think he is. Uh-huh. I think that I think there may be a live video from even possibly from the last year of lockdown and, uh-huh. and such. So I think he's cool. I think he's still playing. I'd love to talk about Gregory Bateson, but that's possibly a, a large chat that it shouldn't be rushed. One thing that I wondered was have do you know the work of Douglas Hofstadter? Yes. Because I've spent 2019 reading as much of his work as I could manage so it's it's uh-huh. um hefty hefty stuff a lot of the time yes with a view to doing a research project involving writing music with his strange loops ideas yes. that would be very interesting I'd love to see that yeah so would I <clears throat> um it wasn't so much a question as a as a thought really just that I think Hofstadter maybe it's ironic because I was reminded of some of his theories in the, how you were describing Bateson's theories. Mm. Although, with the irony in mind that Hofstadt is essentially a materialist in the way he, he reduces things down to very, very complex material loops and um, systems. And he is outspoken about his disagreement with the new physics and this kind of spiritual side of science that was emerging mm-hmm. in Bateson's career and has since continued to grow. I don't know if you if you feel like there's anything in that, whether I'm entirely off the mark or whether there is there was some similarity between Hofstadter's idea of strange complex loops and Bateson's theory of everything. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, in a sense, Hofstadter is, uh, and I haven't read his stuff in quite a long time, but I remember reading it and enjoying it very much. Um, In the one sense, and of course, when you're using the word materialistic, it's not in the sense that I was referring to before. But in one sense, his his theories are, are very, very much in the rational material mold. But on the other hand, he's talking about pattern. You know, when he's talking about in Gödel Escherbach, he's talking about patterns in mathematical logic, patterns in visual representation, patterns in music. And he's seeing that there are analogies between these patterns, regardless of the stuff that the patterns are made of. You know that you're dealing with a systems approach to things when what's really important is the pattern, not the stuff that it's made of, or not the scale that the pattern exists on. Of course, what interests me is a combination of that view plus the kind of extreme materialism I was advocating before, where you really care about that particular piece of wood and how it's finished and polished and how it sounds and when you knock on it and so forth. Um, Because you really need both. You need both sides of that paradox. But Bateson was, uh, again, coming from his father's kind of biology, natural history, 
there's an analogy, there are homologies. Analogy is similarity of function, homology is similarity of structure between the crab's claw and the lobster's claw, you know, between our hand and the dog's paw and so forth. And these homologies are the clues that we are parts of a unitary living system and that we're not really that different from each other, we and the animals. When Bateson tried to summarize his life's work into a single question, the question was, what is the pattern that connects? So in his book, Mind and Nature, he asks, what is the pattern that connects the crab to the lobster, the orchid to the primrose, and all of them to me and me to you? So when we see fellowship, I mean, I'm looking past, I'm looking at you on my computer screen, but beyond the computer screen is a window and there are trees there. When we see fellowship with the birds and with the mushrooms that are growing under the trees, we integrate ourselves into a very big pattern. And to me, music is an expression of that very big pattern. We spoke earlier about improvising music together, let's say, if we were in the room, that we are, by stepping back and giving silence to the other person, and by trading sound back and forth and supporting each other, you are you are discovering and expressing that fellowship with other people and exchanging these sounds, which are really very, very abstract things, but at the same time, they're completely concrete, sensual, tangible experiences. And you can extend that fellowship further to the birds and to the mushrooms and to the Earth's atmosphere which we need to do if we are going to maintain our presence on Earth. That's an important place to stop for now, I would yes. guess. <laughs> if someone were to, to start reading Gregory Bateson's ideas and, and works, where, where is a good place to start as a non-academic? As a non-academic... Um, the book that he intended for non-academics was Mind and Nature, and that's a great place to start. But uh, the place that I would really start, there's a um, compendium of his papers over a period of 30 years called Steps to an Ecology of Mind. That was published in 1972. It was things written back from the 1930s through the 1970. It begins with a series of metalogues. Uh, these are fictional dialogues between himself and a little girl who's in some ways resembling his elder daughter, Kathy Bateson, who just died a few weeks ago. The daughter asks, 
Daddy, how do things get in a muddle? And there's a dialogue back and forth. These were actually published, some of them in a journal of dance. The introduction to his thought is really found in these metalogues. Daddy, what is an instinct? And he talks about that. My dear friend Nora Bates and his younger daughter made a film uh, about him called, which you can find now, and she's, she's active in the world now. It's called An Ecology of Mind. And it's really quite a wonderful, extraordinary film that gives you a great introduction to his thought. Thank you. I look sure. forward to falling down that rabbit hole. Yes. I feel like just speaking to you and reading <laughs> reading some more of your work today has opened up a whole new, many new avenues that I could probably Thank spend you. years and years and years and years uh, Thank you. getting lost down. Where can people find your your output, your music, your, your writings, your... Well, pets. my, um, I'd say the first place to look is in my book, The Art of Is, which really lays out where I've been for the last 40 years of this adventure. Uh, my other book, Free Play, uh, that was published in 1990, and that also takes a more inward and spiritual journey into the creative process and where improvisation comes from. My website is freeplay.com and some of my work is there. Uh, I have a Vimeo channel. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, but I'm preferring Vimeo now because YouTube is clustered with ads all, the, all over the place now. And that's quite unfortunate. Uh, and uh, on Bandcamp, my channel is Blue Cliff Records. For all the listeners, go and check out some of Stephen's work in the flesh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for giving thank us some time. Thank you so much. I hope we can do this again sometime. There's a lot more to be said, I think. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, John. Turquoise Coconut is a UK-based independent record label. For information about releases, videos, collaborations and more, head to turquoisecoconut.com or find us on Facebook. Turquoise Coconut. New music for curious ears.